What's up guys? Welcome back for the latest edition of No Man's Land Tennis. Freddie here joined by Cole. We've got three more days until the tour comes back. Pumped. How about you? You sound really pumped. I mean you just that was that energy level was massive. Yeah, I'm ready. Except the fact that we don't have a an app to track what tournaments are even going on anymore since I, I I'm convinced Ben Rothenberg took him away, but yeah, no, we don't have an app, and, like, the worst part about this is, like, the season's about, like, no one told us we weren't going to have an app until, like, a week before the season. Dude, if we knew about this before, No Man's Land would have built an app. We would have been all over that, and we would have built the best app, and then Tennis Channel and Tennis TV and all these places would be, yeah, you see that? That's just tough. I'm having a little bloody nose issue on the podcast. That is tough. Go, go, <laughs> go fix that. Well, while Cole is taking care of that bloody nose, I'll take a second to shout out our sponsor over in uh, Yapoon, Australia, Tropical Auto Group. Hooked us up with some new shirts. Repping it now. Thanks, Len Harper, all the way down under. And now it looks like Cole's figured it out, I think. <laughs> yeah, that was a tough moment. Sorry, guys. Uh, we had a long week at the Greenbrier this weekend, so just recovering. That, that bloody nose snuck up on me, but we're, we're back. Yep, we're back. So back to tennis app. <laughs> How are we going to figure that out? I, I've got Flash Score downloaded, but I'm hoping that somebody comes out with something decent because the, uh, the other app was so easy. Like, my dad could even figure it out. <laughs> that guy still texts with his voice. Uh, it's I don't know. Looked like Tennis Channel is working on an app. I thought I saw something like that on Twitter, uh, but who knows if if their tennis coverage is any like indication of what their app's gonna be. It'll be half-assed. So um, I don't know. I think some private companies are gonna have to come in and start their own thing. Definitely makes it easier to have an app. Whether you can look at a PDF with all these draws and how much money all these people are going to get, I don't know why this ATP WTA app is gone. I mean, don't we want the WTA and the ATP to be on the same thing? And now you've got an ATP app, and now you have that app that had both on the same thing with qualifying and everything that made everything so accessible. I'm going to start ranting because this is first world problems, and uh, it was easy. I'm just like keep complaining about it. The ESPN app is so easy for all of our other sports. Yeah, maybe maybe we talk to somebody at ESPN and get them to make some something in the in their app with tennis a little bit more accessible. You know, guys at ESPN. Um, yeah, I know one person, so maybe we'll figure that out. I don't know. So maybe we'll lose. But it. speaking about apps, <laughs> our <laughs> app. So I'm just distraught. We're gonna be dropping our website in the next day or two. And with that, we'll be host of all our podcasts, some video stuff, a blog where Cole, our buddy Keith, Griffin, and anybody else who wants to send in some stuff can write about anything tennis, and we'll chuck it up there. Um, and then the third facet of the website is going to be this sort of fantasy tennis thing that we're just starting Um and so that'll be we'll, – we'll release more about that on social media and such in the next day or two. Um, but what we're hoping to do with that is run a fantasy tennis model where we'll we'll be saying, I don't know, 5 or 10 bucks maybe. I'm thinking $10 to put an entry in for a weekly fantasy thing and potential prize money would be 50% of that um, because we want to donate the other 50% to – the Barstool Fund, 
um, which is raising money for small businesses across the country right now. And so I think this is a pretty good way that people in our tennis community can donate and also have a chance to compete against their friends in some fantasy tennis, maybe win a little bit of cash. Um, but it's going to be helping a good cause. So we're going to be dropping that in the next day or two. So, so stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, most of you out there are probably big NFL fans. You've probably all done fantasy football in the past. And God knows how much money you've lost in a fantasy football realm. So you can throw five bucks at this and it can easily, you know, we're, all, we're putting it all to the Barcelona Fund. So it's a good cause. Um, if you don't know anything about it, they're giving money to small businesses, um, mostly like hospitality businesses and uh, services that are being really hit hard during the virus. Um, it's it's a great thing to support and uh, we hope you can support to it in a fun way through this fantasy tennis. Um, as far as a website, I mean, I'm pumped for this. It's, for me, it's looking clean. yeah, it looks clean, doesn't it? All our episodes are on there. You can go check out the past episodes. Uh, if you missed the one with Caroline Dolhide, our first one, all the way up to Dennis Kudla, Lizette was on there. Louis on there now. We got a, we got Stephen Haas on today. Um, also, we have the Fred mentioned the blog spot. That's something I'm very passionate about. I like to read a lot about tennis. Um, like the Racket Magazine is great. So a lot of these articles out on um, on the websites. It's it's nice. We kind of want to do take our take our shot at that as well. And we want you to be a part of it as well. So send in what you want to get off your chest as far as the tennis world. Uh, and Fred, I know that this fantasy tennis has been a baby of yours, so it's exciting. We're moving right along. We want you there with us. Yep. Yeah. No. This is it's really exciting, and I'm glad that we can we can get it up and running before we start the new tennis season 2021. Um, we're gonna see what it looks like. I mean, it's gonna be we're gonna have to work out a few kinks, especially just because of the scheduling. The scheduling is gonna change because a lot of the tournaments are already being canceled, but we'll be adjusting on the fly. So. Be patient and get ready to have some fun. But let's jump into the grandstand, Cole. What's uh, What questions do we have from the grandstand this week? I had one. One come in that was, if you won a tournament and instead of getting a prize check, what would you get? It could be anything. It was just, you, could, you could get anything but money. What would you get? If if this is if I'm the player, what am I hoping I get? Or if this is if I'm the tournament director, and what am I going to give out? That's open to your interpretation. Okay, so I, if I'm the tournament director, so if I'm running something down in Boca, where guys are just nickel and diamond down there, and I can't give them a check, I'm thinking I'm going to give them a two for one down at Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> little coupon they can take their coach down there because <laughs> that's about what guys are winning if they win any of these tournaments anyway so then they don't have to pay taxes on it they just get free dinner and they got a nice garden bar down at ruby tuesday <laughs> oh man that's so good <laughs> no but in all seriousness if i was running a legit tournament and i couldn't give out money i don't know like maybe a sick tesla or something would be pretty cool yeah yeah, probably a car. I think whatever car I could get to sponsor the tournament, and then you they get one of those as the prize. Maybe some Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, some Bitcoin. I don't know. Yeah, that thing's it's skyrocketing right now. I don't even know what it means, but I guess fake money is is all the rage right now. Yeah. Well, anyway, if I was a player and I couldn't get, you know, think about it. I mean, if you're playing a two fifty or 
100 back when we had 100s back in the day, you weren't really getting money anyway. I mean, you were getting like 30K, maybe, maybe, maybe. So what would I want? I mean, from the player standpoint, probably a car or probably a paid vacation. Paid vacation would be nice. Like a week in, uh, week in Fiji or something, something exotic. Yeah. I don't know. That's funny. Ruby Tuesdays is gold. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's pretty good. Well, the the other question I saw that came in was about a tennis walk-up song. So if you were walking out, let, let me paint the picture. It's Thursday night, Arthur Ashe Stadium in Flushing. Cole Wernicke's walking out against Rafa Nadal. And Rafa's already walked on the court. What song are they playing as you walk out? Uh up in here by DMX. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. Man, why that one? Because I'm in New York. There's a little bit of swagger to New York, as we all know. Rafa. What are you? What are you wearing when you're walking out? And uh, that song's playing. Whatever Run DMC recorded this final album in. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Dude, okay. you gotta do something crazy. Like, probably an all-black kit <laughs> with, I don't know, man. With something, like, all-black with, like, Jordan sponsor. Okay. Like something G. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I, I, I think you're gonna laugh at this. <laughs> but I think I'd walk out. some country song. No, 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 no. I'd walk out to Enter Sandman. But I'd be wearing a Michael Vick <laughs> tech jersey. You would get booed on a ride. No. Dude, that would be sick. You maybe, would... I, maybe I have to wear a Frank Beamer one. Yes. But... You would get destroyed. Or Terrell Edmonds. God. Maybe I'd rock be... my Terrell Edmonds jersey. Yeah. But no, I think I, I'd pay pay some tribute to my hokey past. And I'd enter Sandman. And I'd come out. And I'd, there'd be some people jumping out there. That, my DMX, that's a great pick. Um, but my DMX up in here was beat out Fireman by Lil Wayne. <laughs> where everybody, where he goes? Shh. Oh, and then it walks no. out. And then, of course, our our favorite Freddie. Yeah. Everybody wants to rule the world. City open. <laughs> no, that that's like when that's Nadal's filler, no, that's, that's when the, yeah, Nadal's taking the bathroom break, <laughs> and they play that one. For those who don't know that one, let me let me play it real quick. I can see it now. Wayne Bryant's hitting balls during a rain delay at the city open. God. I want this to be like the song I wake up to every day. It's just a good, it's a good feel. <laughs> Should I let him get to the vocals or what? I'm okay with letting this guy play us out. <laughs> Alright. Well, with this, enjoy Stephen Huss, Wimbledon champion, coming up. definitely well thanks for hopping on with us i think we just wanted to chat and see what you're up to and kind of learn a little bit more about what you've been through getting to the point where you're at now and starting your you've started your own academy now right 
I'm about to start it. Yeah, I'm going to start uh, next Monday. Yeah, really uh, sort of a small academy. And I'm looking to work with, I guess, the kids who are, you know, really serious about trying to get the most out of themselves um, and, and do the work that it takes to do that. I mean, you know me from college, Freddie. I I love, you know, tennis and coaching and, and doing doing what I do, but, you know, I, I really want to work with those that are committed and do the extra little things. And so it's just a small program. I just, I'm just looking for 12, 12 players and, and hopefully I can uh, help them achieve their goals. And whether that's division one college, you know, division three college, high division one, or eventually pro wherever um, they kind of want to go to, um, as long as they're committed to do the work, then I, I want to help them do it and support that. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what it is. So are you looking for kind of like a younger, like the younger player that's heading off to college, I guess? Uh, I mean, it's probably the kids that are, you know, anywhere between sort of 13 and 17. So, yeah, I mean, but uh, I'm, I'm doing it sort of in the middle of the day, starting at one o'clock. So it has to be a kid who's either in a half sort of school program, which is becoming more and more common, I think, or a kid who's, you know, totally homeschooling and doing it online. So, yeah, that's where it's at. Nice. And that's awesome. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how, cause you, now you've kind of, as you're going into this junior coaching, you, you've been at all three levels. You're now doing junior coaching. You've been at the pro level and the college level. Can you kind of talk about some of the differences? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think that obviously at the pro level, um, you know, the players are a hundred percent all in and they're decided and that's sort of their whole life of what they're doing. Um, and that, that level of commitment, I think, is, is really cool and really fun to work with. And basically, you know, you have the, the whole day. So, the, you know, the athletes I worked with when I was at the USTA were, were there full time. And we were doing, you know, most of the time we're doing two sessions a day on court. So there's plenty of time. There's ample time for recovery and, and warm up and, you know, gym routines and everything like that. Um, so... For, for in the pro space, that's what it's like. And then in, in the college space, obviously you have to juggle the schooling and the academics together um, with the tennis. And there's obviously the limitations with the rules of how much time you can spend on the court with the players. So that's a little bit of a difference that way. Um, but I felt that at Virginia Tech where I was, I mean, everyone was pretty committed and I, I certainly had guys coming for some, you know, extra individual time outside of the team practice, which, which I really enjoyed and I think was was key to making them better. Um, and now in the junior space, it's it's definitely, um, they have other things in their life and other things that are going on. Um, and, you know, they're just, I think a big part of it is they're just, they're still learning to become, you know, how what it's like to be serious as a tennis player and what it's like to invest in something and to do the work and what it takes. So I think the professionals are more aware of the path that they're on and what it takes. Um, and I think the juniors need to be shown that path and led um, in that way. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a really great challenge um, for me in this space now. And then to balance it with the schooling they're doing and the other things they're doing, um, I think is really important. And so the day is squeezed a little bit more and you have less time. But I think, you know, my goal is to work with great quality um, in that limited amount of time. Um, so the improvements um, can really happen. And, and I'm convinced that, you know, I believe the lower level you go, the more improvements can be faster, right? And then the higher you are in the professional space, the increments of improvement are a lot smaller. Um, 
not in any way less fun. I think, you know, in a lot of ways more fun that they're that small, but I think the, the juniors can really leap and go in, in bigger bounds and, and, and perhaps at a faster pace. It's kind of the law of diminishing returns, right? The better and better you get, the, the harder it is to jump, you know, higher or, or, or longer or bigger steps. Yeah. What, how do you prioritize what you're working on um, with sort of the junior players? So I guess from the outside looking in, for like the junior player, I guess to me, like their mental stability and, you know, in comparison to a professional player probably isn't as strong. So how do you determine what needs more work uh, as far as like the technical, like actually hitting shots versus they need more focus on um, stronger mind. Yeah, I think anyone that you work with, there's an evaluation process, right? I mean, you have to see them hit, you have to see them practice, you have to see their personality, what they're like. Um, and then, you know, overall, we're trying to build good tennis players, right? And good match players. So we have to see them compete and we have to see them play and put them in situations in tournaments or challenge matches um, to see how they react. Uh, so I think the that process of evaluation takes a little bit of a little, a little bit of time. And once you've done that process of, of evaluation, I'm a big believer of identifying sort of two areas that to concentrate on a, on a period of time. And it might be three months somewhere in that area. So let's say, Cole, I've never seen you play, but I'm going to guess your backhand is weaker than your forehand. Um, and perhaps your, perhaps your footwork needs work. Right. And, Listen, as coaches, we're always working on everything and getting everything better, but I'm going to focus on those two areas and I'm going to spend about 20 or 30 minutes a day sort of giving that ample time and giving you repetitions and trying to teach you, you know, better footwork and a, and a, and a better and better backhand. And then the rest of that session, we're going to work on your strengths and we're going to work on playing and how you construct points. So using your serve, using your forehand, um, because ultimately, when you play, you're going to look to use your strengths and the things you're good at much more than you are your weaknesses. So I don't want to gloss over the weaknesses because they need to improve um, so you don't have a hole or a, or a really significant weakness. But, you know, when you play, you're going to you need to, your strengths need to be good because that's what you're going to be looking to use and, and do all the time. You know, one thing I see a lot is I see a, a, a people with a big forehand and they think that that's a real strength. But if that big forehand, if, if I can get two of them back or three of them back and then you miss, that doesn't become a real strength. So that big forehand needs to be repeatable and you need to be able to rely on it um, you know, over and over again and under pressure. So that's kind of how I would structure, evaluate the player, see where, they, see where their biggest needs are, identify a couple of areas, you know, two areas I think from a technical standpoint, then work on those things diligently day to day. Uh, and then review after about three months and decide, okay, this needs more work or, you know, you know what, that's come along better than I thought and we can go to this other area. Uh, that's from a technical standpoint with tennis. And then of course, um, from a mental standpoint or a competitive standpoint, there are things that you can work on every day. Um, and, and often I do those things implicitly. So I don't say, Hey, we're working on this, but you know, let's say, you know, Freddie's a mental midget and every time it gets hard, he, he disappears in a match. Well, I'll have him play sets where he's, you know, love 30 down every game and see if he can play three games before he tanks or, or not. So 
I, I will implicitly work on the mental, I think, more than explicitly, but the, uh, the technical side, I will break it down like that. And then over time, with patience and with consistent practice, those things will get better. Does that make sense, Cole? It does. How does how does how was that evaluation process for the like the players that you're just meeting coming in to Virginia Tech and you're just meeting them and you're coaching them right off the bat? Do you have that time to, you know, three months evaluate and see what you need to do to get these guys ready to play dual matches? Or did you feel like we were sort of rushed and wish you had more time? No, I mean, I think you, you perhaps misunderstood me on the evaluation. I mean, the evaluation is done usually quicker than that, um, but I need to see them play, which I can put them in practice matches, but obviously the dual matches don't come around to the spring. But so the evaluation is going on in practice every day and in everything that we're doing. Um, and the areas of focus is where I was sort of saying, okay, we'll work on this for three months and then I'll review and evaluate. Um, and then decide whether we keep working on that or whether we can change to something else that's that's perhaps more important. Um, but yeah, I mean, the evaluation, it can go quickly because some things are really obvious and then other times um, you need to see a little bit more. And that's where I'm big on actually seeing them play, actually seeing them compete because there are, there are quite a few players that can do things in practice and do them well, and then they get in a match and they're not able to execute them in a match. So, you know, I think that, something that I've improved in my coaching over time is that I'm always reminding myself, okay, I want, we want these kids and these players to be good tennis players, not just good hitters or be able to repeat a forehand cross court drill. We want them to be able to, you know, not only hit well when I'm feeding it to exactly where they know where it is, but when the ball comes randomly and higher and slower and wider and lower, because um, that's what's happened in a match. So trying to build good tennis players and not good, not good hitters or drillers is, is really my overall goal. When, when you were playing on tour, was this sort of the mindset you were taking as you were trying to improve your own game? And like, did you have a coach that was helping you along the way or, or how, how was that? I would say that in my own mind, it certainly wasn't as structured as it is now. Um, but I was definitely one that was going to watch other matches and other people and players that played a little bit like me and trying to see what are they doing better or how, are, you know, he's ranked 50 spots higher than me. Um, what can I take from that? What's he doing better than me? Um, and then I would try and go away and implement those things. So I don't think it was as structured as it is now as, as that I'm a coach, but as a player, um, you know, I was pretty skillful with my play, but I, and, and I didn't have a lot of weapons or big games to sort of overpower each other. So I had to look for little things where I could get advantages because often when I went on the court, I was a bit, I was a bit outgunned with power. I didn't have a big serve. I didn't have huge shots. I had pretty good skill and pretty good nuance and I understood the game and, and I competed well, better and better as I got older and older. So I had different strengths. And so I had to keep looking for little things that would, uh, that would, that would help me out against all the players that had the power. Is there anyone on tour right now that like reminds you of yourself when you were starting out on tour a few years ago? Uh, I haven't been watching so much, um, so much men's doubles lately, which was where, you know, obviously I had my, I had my success, uh, on tour. Um, so no one springs to mind immediately. And I would say that sort of the style that I played is probably going out more and more because power is becoming, you know, more and more important and has become more and more important. And one of the things I kind of reflect on is when I started my career, 
the Woodies, Woodbridge and Woodford were probably the team that was just, just ending their career. And they were probably the best team in the world. And they were so skillful, had so much touch, had unbelievable volleys, really smart, that, that sort of game. And then as, as my career progressed, the Bryans came in and they were very powerful, very intimidating. Of course, they had really good skill as well, but probably not the nuance and touch that the way that the Woodies did. And now I think the Bryans have just retired as probably the best team ever. And, uh, and even them, maybe at the end of their careers, they're starting to get a little bit outgunned by some of the power behind them. So in my mind, it's more and more a power sport than it, than it has ever been before. And it's unbelievably athletic, um, even in doubles, but especially in singles. And so I was glad that I was playing then and not now because I probably wouldn't make it now. <laughs> Does that have to do with the athlete or the technology? Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's mainly to do with the athlete actually. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> man, women, you know, humans were becoming bigger and stronger and faster, you know, in general, I hate to look up in another 25 years and see how fast the game is and, <laughs> and how tall the girls are and how quick, you know, the guys are. And I mean, you've got guys that are, you know, six foot four, six foot six that are moving like gazelles now. Um, and I think the, the training and, and also the, um, the intelligence around coaching and, 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 and sort of developing players, the power is, uh, is, is more and more in the game now. So, and I, I think it's just going to continue to get faster. Um, but thankfully I, I do still feel there is room um, for skill uh, and nuance within that. Uh, and I think that will always be there, but um, yeah, the, the athletes and the power in the game now, and there's just the speed of it is, is pretty incredible. That's why I think Fred can go play some uh, ITFs and see if he can carve carve it up with those skills. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, I don't think my hips are going to allow me to do that. So. How are your hips, Freddie? You doing better? Yeah, they're feeling pretty good. Still doing my my rehab every day just to make sure I don't mess anything up. But yeah, I'm still okay. hitting, hitting decent ball right now. So I think I think maybe I'd catch you in a slice game. <laughs> if I came down to Georgia, well, I, I don't know about that. I, I would take that on. That's that's fine. And I actually, uh, so I'll take you on in a slice game. We'll see how we go. And I see Cole's a bit of a golfer too, so maybe I can take Cole on on the golf course. Yeah, it's, it's okay. You probably could. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm a work in progress, like my tennis game. So. Okay. We fine. played this weekend. We were with George uh, down at the Greenbrier, and we oh, played. Awesome. I played my first ever 18 holes. Really? Yeah, not too bad. I shot a 99 on the first day, and then I shot a 112 on the second day. So, wow. You, you didn't pick an easy course to start at. Yeah, no. It wasn't my choosing, but it was it was a lot of fun. So oh, That's a beautiful spot. Yeah, I was lucky enough to play there last year as well. That's awesome. Yeah. No, we were talking. George brought up because we told him we were going to be talking with you, and he was trying to explain to Cole – about that game we would play in practice where we were basically playing triples with the one guy in the net. And every yeah. time that you would play in, you were the most intimidating human being on the earth. <laughs> it's not that hard to intimidate little George though. Come on. <laughs> you said, uh, you said that you at net is the scariest thing he's ever seen in his life. <laughs> well, we've all got, we've all got to have something that we're good at. So thankfully with how bad my serve was, I had to have good volleys to back it up. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let's transition a little bit to your playing days. So you started at Auburn, right? And then that was back. Oh, I did play some before I went to Auburn, but okay, yeah. No, <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, tennis, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so from Auburn, what was your experience like there and then transitioning onto the tour? I, I had a I had an amazing time um, in university. I mean, being being from Australia and, and back when I got recruited and went to college, the internet was kind of brand new. So you really couldn't look and get all the information that you know now. So I didn't know what I was walking, walking into. I really had no idea. And thankfully, you know, I went to a, a really good school, a really good conference, great competition um, and high level tennis, which really, really helped and facilitated sort of my path to, you know, then play some pro tennis afterwards. Um, so I, I had an unbelievable time. I mean, not only, um, you know, with the tennis and the team and, and playing for each other and, and traveling around and, and, and having things basically taken care of as far as travel and, you know, racket restrings and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I felt spoiled. Um, but also, you know, I had fun socially with the, with the college the way you do. But I did it at the right time. Um, and I think I had a pretty good balance of, you know, having fun off the court. Um, but being professional enough to make sure that I was getting better. Um, and I, you know, to be honest, I pushed the coaches at Auburn, I, I think, to do more work with me and, and to do better because I had the goal and the dream to play afterwards. And despite the, you know, the off-court distractions that you can have and, and all the fun, I, I think I did pretty well with that, with that balance. So I, I had a blast and that really, it really set me up to have a chance to go play pro, I would say, because if I had have just gone pro when I was 19, 20, instead of going to college, I don't think I, I would have done it. So it was a, it was a really good path um, for me. When, when you turned pro, did you know that it was going to be doubles or did you think that you were going to play singles as well? No, I didn't. Um, I mean, I, I hope to play both, um, but I was 24 when I finished college um, because I didn't go until I was 20. The rules were a little more lax there. Uh, they're not the same now. But so I went to college at 20, finished at 24, and then went out on the tour. So I was a bit older. Uh, and then after, uh, let's see, after six months, I think I was 270 in doubles and I was, you know, 900 in singles, something like that. Um, and then I, I played the Australian Open. I got a wild card in the Australian Open. So basically seven months out of college. And we played uh, Woodbridge and Bjorkman, who were maybe two in the world at that point. And, uh, and we lost, I think, three in the third or four in the third. And I played a really good match. And I actually felt sort of comfortable on court with you know, those guys that were in the top five in the world. And that was a really good indication that, okay, I can play doubles at this level. Uh, and then on the flip side, I kept getting indications that I probably couldn't play singles at that level. So, you know, I'd come, I'd come up against a guy that was 300 or something and he would wipe me two and one, or I would play a guy that was, you know, 800 sort of similar to my level. And on big points, I was unsure of how to play and, and, and what to do. Um, and so it was pretty evident pretty quickly that um, I was a lot more comfortable in doubles and I was, Gonna ha I, I could I could achieve my dream of playing in the Grand Slams in doubles and in singles I was getting a lot of indications that I wasn't ever going to do that so it was really after about nine months that I you know sat down with my coach and decided yeah I mean I'm going to concentrate on doubles that's what I'm better at and 
you know, I think some people see that as failing or, or you're not doing the right thing. But I mean, for me, it was the right decision and I would make it again because I, I don't think I would have made even qualifying in a Grand Slam in singles. Um, and, and, and I'm okay with that. And, and at 24 or 25, I was comfortable making that decision. I wasn't 20 or 21 uh, where I could still, you know, grind it out and, and give me, give myself more time. So absolutely the right decision for me. And I'm glad I made it. And, uh, you know, to compete as long as I did and as many times as I could in the grand slams, which I watched as a kid and dreamt about um, was what I wanted to do. So I'm, I'm really happy with that decision and, and proud of what I did. That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh man. I couldn't imagine playing like us open. That would be crazy. Brett. <laughs> Yeah, that was my least successful slam the US Open. I uh, I love being in New York, loved, loved Manhattan and staying there and the whole experience. But uh, for some reason, I never had any success there. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw, I saw the, I was looking at the results outside of Wimbledon as uh, in 2000. Oh, no. But, but I saw the uh, French Open third round. Yeah, no, yeah, I made the round of 16 at the French, I think, three times. Um, I absolutely love the courts there. I mean, you guys aren't probably that familiar with red clay, but um, I mean, red clay, you can get a lot of different courts, even though they're all red clay. Um, but the courts of the French are just perfect. They're uh, unbelievably flat and uh, it's so fine. Um, the bounce is awesome. Um, the lines, you can get bad bounces, but any bounce on the court is just so true. And I absolutely love playing there. And that was, I think, a reason why I played pretty well there and had some had some good results, even though you might you might not say uh, clay was my absolute best surface, but it's actually what I it's actually what I grew up on. So I felt pretty comfortable on it and, and love playing there. Yeah. So if you ever get a chance to go to the French and sneak out at 730 when they're putting the nets up, jump on one of those main courts and you yeah. will love it. <laughs> I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about uh, your 2005 run to the Wimbledon Championship. Um, you played the the six, the nine, the two, the three, and the one seed. And I was just after qualifying, and I was just curious: at what point were you? Did you think that it could possibly happen, or were you just in, insanely nervous? <laughs> um. <laughs> I think the, the, I mean, honestly, the first time that I thought that we could win it was when we were in the final. Um, I, I didn't think about it before then. I, I, I talked about this a, a little bit to some other people, but I was in a great mindset and routine of focusing on who we were playing against. You know, I would go and we were around ahead in all our matches because often the qualifiers play on the Tuesday of the first week mm -hmm. and most of the double starts on the Wednesday. So Whenever we won, I went out the next day and watched our opponents and kind of scouted and, and, and I'd put together a plan and I would email it to my coach back in Australia um, and then visualize the night before and, and go out and try and do my best in the matches. And so I was in this really great routine of just match to match. And, um, and I mean, we were playing so well, even on the off days where we practiced, uh, we were practicing really well. I remember the uh, Wes's coach, uh, John Lafney Diego, one day he said, oh, you're like... Uh, he goes, oh, you're like two kids in a candy store. You're hitting it sweet. You know, he was just, we just couldn't, you know, we were playing so well and hitting the ball so clean. Um, and so that routine was, was really good. And it wasn't until the final that I just kind of went, oh, well, one more match and we can, and we can win it. Um, and of course the nerves come. Um, but 
uh, I was able to kind of focus on the game plan that we had. And, and, you know, at that point I, I knew how to play doubles pretty well. So that was kind of what I reminded myself of, but of course the, the nerves are there from time to time, but I was able to manage them on that occasion. Just, I mean, just kind of, I mean, meeting you first time here and just kind of, you know, hearing from you and talking to you, I kind of get this sense that you were like a true professional playing the sport um, versus like the horror stories you hear today. Like some of the younger players, like they'll go out to the bar before a, a grand slam match. I mean, it's, it's kind of like refreshing to hear kind of like you're emailing your coach back in Australia for a game. Like that's, you don't hear stuff like that. So I don't know. I, I think that, I think that's really, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think there's, there's probably more of that going on than, than you think as far as the professionalism. And I think these days it's, it's actually more and more. There were certainly some, there's some times early in my career where we'd lose. And when we lost, we went out and we had a night out and, you know, <laughs> that's what we did. Um, and that was fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly around in preparation for matches, um, yeah, that the professionalism was was absolutely there. Uh, but yeah, there were times where we'd lose and we probably, you know, went out and had too late a night and too many drinks and probably shouldn't have done that. But again, you, you learn from these experiences and we don't expect, you know, the kids and players I work with, they can't be robots and machines and be perfect. But if you're serious about your sport, then you'll make decisions, you know, based around your sport. And, I, you know, I mentioned before in college and I like I told you, I had a, I had a lot of fun in college but I also made decisions not to do some things or not to do it at this time around my tennis. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty good at that, I guess. Back, back to the Wimbledon, as you played it, however many years, what, what was like the evolution of the grass? Cause I know they've like changed the grass over the course of the years. Did, did you notice a pretty big difference from when you first played Wimbledon until the last year that you played? Yeah, no, they've certainly, um, they have slowed it down. Um, they used to cut it finer. So I couldn't tell you how many millimeters, but it used to be, let's say two millimeters. And now they leave it at four millimeters or whatever it is. So the grass is a little longer. So it, you know, catches the ball a little bit more and slows it down. I mean, I remember the first time uh, I went to Wimbledon, we lost in the last round of qualifying. Um, and so I had to go to Wimbledon to get my lucky loser badge. You know, it says loser on the badge that you wear around, which isn't overly flattering. But I mean, my partner and I, Lee Pearson, we walked into the into Wimbledon to get our badge and we just walked past all the courts and it was like, oh my God, this place is amazing. I mean, the courts are just, they are just perfect. So I think the surface at Wimbledon has always been fantastic as, as in really good bounces and, and clean but it was certainly faster. And they also made the balls a little bit bigger, which slowed things down again. Um, and at the, you know, it was really very early in my career. I mean, I think Leighton Hewitt played Nell Bandian in the final, and that was kind of the changing of the guard. And that was an indication to everyone that, oh, you can actually stay back and win this tournament. Um, you know, Xavier Melise was in the semis as well, who, who, who mainly stayed back um, and, that's when I think it kind of changed because in the late nineties, it was, you know, Sampras and Krajacek, um, Filipusis did well there, even Izovic. Uh, and then after that, it was kind of like, Oh, we can play from the baseline on this court. And I've talked to some players, the generation before me, like a guy like Wayne Ferreira. And he said, Oh, people would laugh at you if you tried to stay back, you know, because the ball just didn't bounce clean and it was so fast. So, 
the surface has significantly changed over the last couple of generations and it was noticeable in my time but perhaps not um not huge uh so yeah but it's a it's an it's an unbelievably clean and natural surface to play on and anyone who gets the chance to go there and visit the tournament um you should absolutely do it it's for me it's the home of tennis and um, and, and, you know, for the kids or for the players that are aspiring to be there, keep aspiring to be there because it's everything you hear about. Yeah. Cole, Cole thinks that um, in the coming years that they're going to rename center court after Roger Federer. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, that's not a bad, well, then they, then they'd name Roland Garros after Rafa too, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and Australia after Novak. So yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, he probably he probably deserves it, but if anyone deserves it, it's probably Rafa with his thirteen. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I that's a wish. I don't think that's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard you've been making some pretty big predictions. Some something about Benoit Pair. I heard about as well. That's another wish. <laughs> he needs to call you and get you to fix his forehand before he makes a, a run to the Roland Garros final. Uh, I don't think it's beforehand. I think Stephen would really do a lot of work up here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say something, but uh, yeah, don't want to uh, offend anyone. But you know, there there are people with funky funky styles or things that have gone a long, long way in tennis. So he, he may be able to do it with the forehand, but he probably won't be able to do it with the mind. <laughs> I did. I did want to ask you one more question um, on the on the topic of partners. How do you determine who you're going to play with and for how long you're going to play with them for? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And, and one that I think people don't understand. I mean, it's, it's uh, it, it can be a, I mean, if you're a top team in the world, it's basically, Hey, let's play together next year. And you're committed for the whole year. And unless, you know, you do horribly for the first three, four, five months, you're probably going to stay together the year. So that, that was the way it would work probably with the top 10 or 15 guys. And then everyone behind that or close to that. And, and I spent most of my time sort of between, you know, 35 and 80, something like that. That was where I was there for the most of my career. There was sometimes where I was a little bit higher and there was some time where I was a little bit lower. Um, but in that range, um, the, the super nine tournaments what do they call them these days the nine masters yeah the masters tournaments was so hard to get into you had to be basically somewhere in the area of 75 combined to get into them so if you're 40 in the world you need to find someone 30 to to make sure that you got in and if you and your part if your partner was 45 well it was like all right, sorry, I, you know, we can't play together this week. I've got to find someone else. And so there's a lot more shifting and changing um, the lower down you go. And unfortunately, that, that happened to me as well. So I say unfortunately because I love to build a partnership with someone and stick with it and get continuity around that. Um, but there are a lot of players that would want to move on or, or think that they're moving up. Or, and so there is a lot of change the lower you go. And it, it, it's literally like uh, sending texts and sending emails and where you're going and are you playing, you know, Palermo next week? Oh, no, you're going to France. Okay, I'm, I might go to Toronto. Like, and, and that's the way it works. It's, it's basically like, uh, it's like, it's almost like dating, like fast dating, you know, it's like sit down for a minute. Where are you going? Is it possible? Can we get in? Yes. 
or no, next. <laughs> That's speed dating sort of stuff. So it is a bit, it is a bit wishy-washy like that as you get as you get lower down, and sometimes you have to change to get into tournaments. Um, and that certainly happened to me at the Masters level. I mean, the Grand Slams I got in consistently because it's a bigger draw. Um, but at the Masters level, you know, you had to try and see who you could play with. When yeah. you when you won Wimbledon with Wes, was how many times did you guys play together before that? Uh, I believe it was only once. Wow. Yeah, I think it was once. We played together in January of the same year, at the first tournament of the year in a little place called Namia, which is an island outside of Australia. And we won the tournament pretty clearly. Um, we won, yeah, I think we won every match in straight sets. And I remember I was in Mexico in about March or April and I was on a bad run. I was struggling and wasn't playing well, wasn't winning matches. And I thought to myself, okay, this could be my last Wimbledon. Like literally that's what I said. And it was my favorite tournament. I love the best of five there. And I thought, okay, who, who can I play with? I want to get ahead of the curve here. And I kind of wrote down a bunch of names and who I wanted to play with. And Wes was number one on my list um, because we play well together and also because we complement each other. He was the real powerful guy with the big serve. And I was kind of the, you know, cherry pick around the net, good volleys. And, and Wes also volleyed well, so he could help me on my serve. And so he was kind of the guy that I wanted to play with. And so I emailed him really early and just said, hey, let's do Wimbledon. And I knew he'd be in singles qualifying there. Um, which he was because of his singles ranking. He was probably ranked 150 or 180 or somewhere in there. And so, yeah, so I got ahead of the curve there and said, oh, let's play together at Wimbledon. And um, and actually just quickly, but at the qualifying, he was struggling with his back. And he told me later he was like that close to pulling out of doubles oh, and wow. playing because he was trying to concentrate on his singles. Because his back was kind of bothering him. So, and I saw that as well. So that wasn't a shock to me that he told me that. I saw that he was getting extra treatment and stretching and straining. And so he was pretty close to pulling out. So thank God he didn't. <laughs> Seriously. Wow. Yeah. The title yeah actually on that. And sorry, Cole, to follow up. I mean, it was only, you know, Wes and I won Wimbledon and then we played a few more tournaments. We lost first round of US Open and really didn't play well. And particularly, I didn't play well, put my hand up and say, worst on court. <laughs> um, but, and after that, you know, Wes told me, hey, uh, you know, another guy's asked me for next year, I'm going to play with him. And I was kind of like, what? Like, really? Like, we, you know, we just, we just won a tournament, pretty big one, not long ago. Don't you think we should stick together? And, and, and that, but that's kind of how it was. And that's kind of how it went. And although that was, you know, incredibly disappointing because I thought we could do a lot more damage in the future, um, we really didn't play much together after that, which which was a shame. Yeah, no, I was I've always just been curious of that because you know I follow you follow Joao, I follow Joao every once in a while. He's playing with a different guy every tournament, and then you look at I think last year I think or a year or two years ago when Murray was coming back from his surgery he broke up the French pairing that, and one of the French guys came and played with him at Wimbledon and everybody made a big deal about it. And I was just thinking like, what well, all these guys ranked outside the top hundred play with a different person every week. So I, I was just, I was just curious. Yep. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Steven. I think that's all we got from you. We won't badger you too much.